Hello, my name is Pastor Mark Sturmer with The Church International, and I would just like to say welcome to our podcast. I know God wants to use this to speak something very positive into your life. I know this will encourage you, help you grow in your walk with the Lord. And look, if you enjoy this, leave a review, make sure you share it with someone, and go ahead and subscribe so that you won't miss out on any of the messages that God wants to communicate to you. Well, look, God bless, get ready, lean in, and watch what the Lord is about to do. We're going to look at just the overview. I want you to see an overview of 1 Kings. And actually, the overview is 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and they put that together in their overview, which is fine. We can just learn more that way. And, uh, and then I'm going to come up after the overview so you can get a, a grasp of the overall and we're going to kind of drill down into the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings and really drill down into Solomon. I think we have a lot to learn from Solomon that can really help us. And uh, are you ready for that? Okay, so let's, let's start learning. Ready? Learn. The books of 1 and 2 Kings. Although they're two separate books in our Bibles, they were originally written as one book telling a unified story that continues on from the book of Samuel that came before it. So David has unified the tribes of Israel into a kingdom, and God promised that from his line would come a messianic king who would establish God's kingdom over the nations and fulfill the promises made to Abraham. So the book of Kings tells the story of the long line of kings that came after David, and none of them lived up to that promise. In fact, they run the nation of Israel right into the ground. The book is designed to have five main movements. The story begins and ends focus on Jerusalem, first with Solomon's reign and the construction of the temple, and then in this last section ending with Jerusalem's destruction and Israel's exile to Babylon. And the story leading up to this tragedy is what makes up the center three sections, which explain how Israel split into two rival kingdoms, how God tried to prevent the corruption of Israel by sending the prophets, and how exile became the unavoidable consequence of Israel's sin. The book opens with two chapters about the kingdom passing from the aging David to his son Solomon. And David's final words to Solomon, they're very similar to those of Moses and Joshua and Samuel to the people. It's a call to remain faithful to the commands of the covenant and to give allegiance to the God of Israel alone. But David's words ring somewhat hollow here because David and Solomon then go on to conspire how they're going to consolidate this new kingdom through a whole series of political assassinations. It's not off to a great start. Solomon's brightest moment comes when he asks God for wisdom to lead Israel. And he even completes David's dream to make a temple for the God of Israel. Here the story actually stops and describes the design of this temple in detail, just like the tabernacle design in the Torah. There's all these gold and jewels and depictions of angels and fruit trees. It's all symbolism echoing back to the Garden of Eden. It's the place where heaven and earth meet, where God's presence dwells with his people. But no sooner does Solomon finish the temple that he makes some really horrible choices and the kingdom falls apart. He starts marrying the daughters of other kings, hundreds of them, for political alliances. And then he adopts their gods and introduces the worship of those gods into Israel. Solomon then accumulates huge amounts of wealth. He builds a huge army. He even institutes slave labor for all of his building projects. Now, if you go back to the Torah and look at God's guidelines for Israel's kings in Deuteronomy 17, Solomon is 
breaking every one. So by the time that he dies, Solomon resembles Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, more than he does his father David. The next section of the book opens with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, acting just like his father. It's a very sad story of greed and lust for power. He tries to increase taxes for slave labor. And under the leadership of Jeroboam, the northern tribes reject this. They rebel and secede and form their own rival kingdom. And so now in the story, you have the southern kingdom, Judah, centered in Jerusalem with kings from the line of David. And now this new northern kingdom called Israel, whose capital will be Samaria eventually. Jeroboam also goes on to build two new temples to compete with Solomon's temple in the south. He puts a golden calf in each one to represent the God of Israel. The connection to Exodus 32 and the golden calf, it's all quite explicit. From this point on, the story goes back and forth from north to south, tracing the fate of both kingdoms. Each one had about 20 successive kings, and as the author introduces each king, he evaluates their reign by a few criteria. Did they worship the God of Israel alone, or did they promote the worship of other gods? Did they deal with idolatry among the people? And did they remain faithful to the covenant like David, or do they become corrupt and unjust? And according to these criteria, the author finds no good kings in northern Israel, 0 for 20. And then in southern Judah, only 8 out of 20 get a positive rating, which connects to another huge purpose in this book, and that's to introduce the role of the prophets, key figures in Israel's history. So in the Bible, prophets were not fortune tellers. Rather, they spoke on behalf of the God of Israel, and they played the role of covenant watchdogs, which means they called out idolatry and injustice among the kings and the people. They were constantly reminding Israel of their calling to be a light to the nations, that they should obey the commands of the Torah, and so the prophets challenged Israel to repent and follow their God. In these center sections for each king, God then raises up prophets to hold them accountable. And the most prominent prophets are the northern ones, Elijah and his disciple Elisha, right here in the center of the book. Elijah was a wild man of a prophet living out in the desert, and his arch nemesis was the northern king Ahab and his Canaanite wife Jezebel. Together, these two had instituted the worship of the Canaanite god Baal over Israel. And so in a famous story, Elijah challenged 450 prophets of Baal to a contest to see which god was real. So they both build altars and pray to their gods, but only the god of Israel answers with fire. After this, Ahab uses his royal power to murder an Israelite farmer and then steal his family's vineyard. And Elijah again confronts Ahab's injustice and he announces the downfall of his house. Elijah eventually passes the mantle of his prophetic leadership to a young disciple named Elisha, who asks for two times the authority of Elijah. And what's fascinating here is how the author, he's recounted seven miraculous feats for Elijah, and then he offers stories of 14 acts of power from Elijah. Both prophets were clearly remarkable men, and they played the same role, confronting Israel's kings for idolatry and injustice. And ultimately, they were unsuccessful in turning Israel back from apostasy. In the next section, the northern kingdom is rocked by a bloody revolution started by a king named Jehu, who destroys Ahab's family. And although Jehu was at first commissioned by God, his violence just gets out of control, and it creates the spiral of political assassinations and rebellions from which Israel never recovered. Coup follows coup after Jehu, and each king follows other gods, allows horrible injustice. It all leads up to 2 Kings chapter 17. 
the big bad empire of Assyria swoops down and takes out the northern kingdom altogether. In the capital city of Samaria, it's conquered and the Israelites are exiled and scattered throughout the ancient world. Now, chapter 17 is key. The author stops the story and offers this prophetic reflection on what's just happened. He blames the downfall of the northern kingdom on the idolatry and covenant unfaithfulness of Israel and its kings. And so God has allowed them to face the consequences of their decisions. The final movement of the book tells the story of the lone southern kingdom. And here we meet some very heroic kings like Hezekiah, who trusts God when the armies of Assyria come knocking on Jerusalem's door, or Josiah, who discovers this lost scroll of the Torah in the temple. So he starts reading it. He's convicted and he institutes religious reforms to remove idolatry and Canaanite influences from the land. But Judah is just too far gone. The king, right in between these two, Manasseh, he's the worst by far. So he not only introduces the worship of idol statues into the Jerusalem temple, he also institutes child sacrifice. And so God sends prophets to say, the time is up. Israel has reached the point of no return. The final chapters tell the story of the Babylonian Empire coming to invade Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and carry the people and the royal line of David off into exile. And so the story ends leaving us wondering, is God done with Israel? Is he done with the line of David? Well, the final paragraph zooms about 40 years forward into the exile, and it tells a very odd story. It's about Jehoiakim, a descendant from David, who would have been king if he was back in Jerusalem. And the king of Babylon releases him from prison and invites him to eat at the royal table for the rest of his life, and the book ends. So it's not much, but it's a story that gives a glimmer of hope that God has not abandoned the line of David. So the question now is, how is God going to fulfill his promises to Abraham, to David? How is he going to bless the nations and bring the messianic kingdom? And to answer those questions, you have to read on into the wisdom and the prophetic books. But for now, that's the book of Kings. Wow. Come on, get a little hand clap, amen. Yes. A couple of things just watching that video uh, that are just sad, really, is... I mean, two of the greatest prophets could not turn the nation. Two of the greatest prophets could not turn the nation. And then it finally God steps in, and of course they get exiled. But one of the things that stood out while I was standing over there, and I just felt the Lord wanted me to share, was they kept talking about idolatry, idolatry, idolatry. And uh, idolatry is the sin of witchcraft. And actually, in the New Testament, it actually says that greediness is actually idolatry. And so it's the greediness when we're, 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 we're basically uh, sucking up everything that God gives us and we're hoarding it. And that's a form of idolatry. So literally, you know, when you're not a giver, you can actually, you've turned your money into idolatry because your, your greediness is holding on to it. Uh, you know, idolatry could be many things. It can be, I know in my life, I was... Um, had a hobby of shooting a longbow recurve, and I would shoot tournaments, and I kind of let it consume me. And when I let it consume me, I mean, I just took my bow everywhere. Actually, back in the day, I, I would take it in the plant to work and set up a target in the control room, guys. And uh, I'd be in there shooting at night in the control room, practicing with my longbow and my recurve and stuff. And then I was shooting the house. I would shoot everywhere. And then finally one day, I was on the front porch, and 
really, I was supposed to go somewhere to be uh, with somebody and on, uh, in a, a gathering, a Christian gathering, and, this, and I decided, no, I've got to practice to, to shoot for this tournament coming up and all that. And I remember I was on the front porch, and I had this bow that was just incredible bow that was uh, very expensive and very well made. And I was shooting off my front porch, and that bow broke in half, and it hit me in the head and about knocked me out. And I was like, and, and literally, I just, it was like the Lord just spoke to me. He's saying, you know, I'm going to do more than that if you don't put that down. Because that's become an idol in your life. You're, you're taking, and so hobbies can be an idol in our life. When, when the hobby is more important than serving God, then, you know, any, put it this way. Anything that takes you away from engaging in the kingdom of God now, I'm not saying hobbies are bad. I, I love hobbies. I have hobbies. But they're, they can't take the place. Can I get an amen? They can't become above. Our children can be idols. You know, our children, uh, actually the nation of Israel, it was because of their children, they said, that they didn't want to go into the promised land and fight. So basically they took their kids and they said, no, I'm putting my kids above that. And then they ended up... Uh, getting punished because of that thought and so they were not allowed to go into promised land and then their kids had to go fight the battle that they should have fought think about that and so and then you see child sacrificing like, oh my goodness well what is you know and i'll say this you know kindly because i know maybe some people in here have have done many of those things and but the beautiful thing is you can repent and come out of that can i get an amen and be forgiven of that but uh, that's what abortion has been. Uh, you know, for the most part, abortion has been about the convenience and, and the sacrificing our children on the altar. And just, man, that's just been a horrible thing. Thank God we were able to uh, overturn Roe versus Wade. Can I get an amen? And in the state of Louisiana, abortions aren't allowed. Come on, let's give a, a hand clap to that. It's huge. By the way, by the way, that's a real form of repentance. Guys, revival is not us coming in and have a great service and shining our light in each other's face. That, that is so not revival. Revival is when you start seeing systemic changes, like the repentance of killing the unborn children and the abolishing that act. That's when you see, wow, God is doing some pretty incredible things in our midst. So, man, I, I would be excited about that because there's been some big moves that have taken place in a biblical sense for our state. Can I get an amen? Yeah. And so I've been very excited. Even the Supreme Court doing that was a huge thing. Uh, we, got a, we still got a long ways to go. And that's another thing I want to just throw out there. I may not get to all this message, but that's fine. Uh, that's another thing uh, I want to throw out. I never know what I'm going to say when I'm up here. Uh, you know, I, I was you know, just throwing out there is you saw that there are many times where he said, hey, this king did what was right in the eyes of God. But he would say, except, except he's still messing with the high places. And so you, you, many times we can be doing <clears throat> good things, but we need to find, make sure there's no except in our life. Come on, someone. So that we can be pleasing to the Lord uh, fully. God will still bless, 
But it's not about being blessed. And I think we need to get away from that too. It's not about doing the right thing to get blessed. Because that's idolatry in itself. That the only reason I'm doing what I'm doing is so that I will get blessed. That God would give me something. That's the wrong heart behind it. And that's what Jesus came and abolished. He said, I didn't abolish the law, I fulfilled the law by giving you the heart behind it. It's all about loving the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's about loving your neighbor as yourself. In doing that, you fulfill all of the law. In other words, it's, it's about the intent and the heart of what's going on on the inside of us. So we should do what we do, not because we don't want God to punish us or get chastised. We should do what we do, not because we want to be blessed. We should do what we do because we love God and we simply just want to please him. And really, it really goes balls down to that right there. Can I get an amen? Let's jump in real quick with Solomon. First of all, um, this is actually encouraging. When you read the First Testament, can I say that with you guys? You're good with that? When we read the First Testament, um, <laughs> you can't help but notice their families were messed up. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm talking about these were people God's using. Their families were messed up. But God can take someone from a messed up family and he can set them in a high place. He can take someone from a bad situation and he can take what the enemy meant for evil and he can turn that into a good thing. The very life of Solomon is that. I mean, think of, I mean, where did Solomon come from? Who is his mother? Can anyone tell me? Bathsheba. Who was Bathsheba's husband? Uriah. And so David kills Uriah. Of course, the first child died, but then he had Solomon from Bathsheba. And then Solomon's going to be the one that God uses to be one of the wisest kings and uh, really bring Israel into its heyday was Solomon. And so in that broken situation of, man, adultery, murder, uh, deceit, I mean, in that adulterous situation, everything that went on. And you got to understand something. God never looked at uh, Bathsheba as David's wife. Because if you look at the genealogy, did I say that right? That word. If you look at, you know, the line that they explain. In, in the New Testament, it actually says, when it says um, Bathsheba, it says Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. It does not say Bathsheba, the wife of David. And he's talking about the line of Solomon. God, even, even bringing into the New Testament, the New Covenant, still remembered who she belonged to. She belonged to Uriah and said it. Yet, he still took her and allowed Solomon to be born, even though they had this messed up scheme, and Solomon was able to be used to do some great things. So if you're in here and you've come from a messed up background and a lot of just messed up situation, then guess what? God can still use you. God can still bring you and use you in a mighty way. Don't think, oh man, I'm nothing, it's kind of, I've got this bad foundation and I'm, no, uh, he is the foundation. Can I get an amen? 
Just FYI, we all had a bad foundation. Whether it was a good family or a bad family, it was all a flawed foundation. The only foundation that can be built is the one of Jesus Christ, Son of God. And we're told that in 1 Corinthians, and so we, we understand that. But in 1 Kings, in chapter 2, as David's time drew near, it said, He commanded his son Solomon, saying, I am going to the way of the earth, so be strong and prove yourself a man. And I, I just want to encourage you guys, once you come into the kingdom, and once you begin to grow in the Lord, and the Lord begins to expect us to do something for His kingdom, for His house, we've got to mature. You know, the Bible actually in Corinthians says, no longer should we act like kids, but we should act like adults. And so there's a maturity that has to take place in our walk. And I just encourage you, if you're still in that uh, childishness state of Christianity, we need to come out of that and we need to mature in the Lord. And then he, he keeps going and he says, so show, prove yourself to be an adult. And he says, do your duty to the Lord your God. That's how you prove yourself to be mature. Is you know, you know what God expects and then you prove it by doing it. Can I get an amen? And it says, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses, so that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. I, I love this, guys, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. So who wants to be successful in life? Guess what? God wants you to be successful. But if you're going to be successful in God's economy, in God's kingdom, and in life, and in the earth, he says this is what you need to do. You need to follow, do it my way. When you do it my way, then you're going to be successful. And I love this. It doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter if you with Syngenta. It doesn't matter if you with uh, Copolymer. It doesn't matter if you a nurse. It doesn't matter, you know, if, if you retired. It doesn't, it doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter if you're uh, working at a, in, a, in a store as a... As a you know, at the register, it, it really doesn't matter. He says, wherever you're at, I'm going to make you successful there. Amen. So don't think that success is found in some different location. The only location that success is found is in Christ. It's, it's, that's success. That's what we need to teach our kids. That's where success is found, is when they make Christ their foundation. Can I get an Amen. But let's go to 1 Kings chapter 3. It says, And the king went to Gibeon. So Solomon uh, went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. That was actually a high place. Because that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings at that altar. Now let me just stop a second. Saturday, uh, Terry, where you at? Is Bubba in here tonight? You here, Terry? Terry, we... we uh, so we, Bubba, Terry, some of us, we all went and we got the church cowboys. And so we go help people work their ranches and stuff. Bill, you've been there. Uh, Kel, you've been there. And this guy's got, uh, you know, over a thousand head of cattle. And that's a lot of cows. And when I think about Solomon in one day, and I actually told that in our devotional before we started working cows. I said, hey, guys, uh, man. Think about this whole ranch. If we took this whole ranch, every head of cattle here, and we killed it today. That we were bringing them, and we were killing them to sacrifice them to God. 
I mean, that would be a bloody event. I'm English. That was a bloody event. <laughs> That'd be a bloody event. I mean, it'd be, that's a lot of skinning. That's a lot of work. Uh, Caleb, didn't you just do a cow with Bubba? All right, was it a lot of work? It took you all day, right? And so you're talking about to, to slaughter a thousand, a thousand, and take the, inner, the innards and uh, the special parts that God would put on the altar and the fat and everything else and to put that on the altar and then the people would actually eat the meat. But that, you, you're talking about, man, that's a lot of animals in one day. I mean, it's extravagant. I mean, that wasn't expected. I mean, I think under the law, it's like come and just bring an a ox. That's all he needed to do. He came and brought a thousand. I mean, this is, this is, this is extravagant giving to God. And it says, uh, after he did that in Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. By the way, don't underestimate the power of God coming to you in a dream. We live in a, uh, honestly, in our culture, in a post-Christian culture where we don't believe in the supernatural anymore. I very much believe in dreams and divine dreams. Now, look, you, there's pizza dreams. Come on, somebody. You, you eat too much pizza, you have them pizza dreams. And then they've got, you know, then they've got demonic dreams. And they've got just dreams from much activity. I, and all I'm doing is quoting scripture. In the scripture, it talks about all these types of dreams. But there are divine dreams. I mean, didn't Joseph have a divine dream? about Mary. And so dreams are very important. So God came to him in a dream. He appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. And God said, ask, ask what you wish. Ask what you wish me to give you. In other words, anything you want, I'll give it to you. Now, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, this is the God of the universe, the creator of everything, saying, ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. By the way, I've had that happen to me five times in my walk, and I am so grateful to the Lord. And every time he's asked me, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. All five things that I asked for, I have been given verbatim. He even told me time. He said, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen within a year and a half. And exactly in a year and a half, it happened. And I'm talking about things that only God can do. And so this is, this is a big deal. So he's Solomon here. He tells Solomon, he said, I give you whatever you want. And so this is what Solomon says. So give your servant, and this is what he says. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is capable of judging this great people of yours? Now this is, when he asked for that, this is what God said, now it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, because you have asked this thing and not asked for yourself. Now, we'll stop right there. Then you got to fast forward. Fast forward to James when it says you ask and you don't have or you don't have because you don't ask. And then you ask and don't have because you ask for something for yourself. And so we, we learned something here that we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be concerned just about ourselves. You know, Solomon, he was like, hey, you've given me this and I need your help to accomplish it. And I, you need to give me this so I can help the people. 
And because it was not a selfish ask, it pleased the Lord. So we've got to be careful that our prayer life is not filled with selfish ask. That our prayer life, now is it wrong to ask something for yourself? No, it's not. But you've got to be careful with it. You've got to make sure that you're not just asking for yourself. That you're asking for others. You're asking for things that are going to benefit the kingdom. And it's, it's just a very important thing here. But first, I want you to see, he wouldn't have got the dream if he wouldn't have did the extravagant giving. So it was because of his heart to go over and above what was expected of him in his giving. That's why God said, wow, this guy, that pleased me, so I'll give you whatever you want. Because here's God. He said, you ain't going to outgive me, so I'll give you whatever you want. And then when he asked this, the Lord's like, wow, I like this guy. This is good. And, but because he didn't ask for anything for himself, watch what God does. He said, because you didn't ask for long life, nor ask for riches for yourself, nor did you ask for your lives of your enemies, but have asked for your self-discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart. And it was immediately after that is where the kid was brought with the two mothers and one child had died. And he said, cut the baby in half. And the real mother said, no, you just give it to him. He said, well, that's the real mother. And so he gave him the, the, this wise heart and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one uh, arise after you. And watch this. I have also, so Father said, okay, I'm giving you what you're asking for because you didn't ask for all that other stuff. I want you to see this. I have also given you what you have not asked for. Both riches, honor, so that there will be, uh, there will not be any other king like you in all your days. Wow. I want you to see this. So when, when you just take care of God's kingdom, God's people, God's house, God's mission, what does God turn around and do for you? He takes care of you. He takes care of you. Those who are seeking for the stuff for you, that's why you're all caught up and get anxiety and all this kind of stuff. What scripture am I talking about? Matthew what? Yep, 6. Matthew 6, where it says, the world seeks for all that stuff. And he says, I know that you need all that, but quit, quit seeking for that. Guys, I want to encourage you, quit going after the things the world go after. And start going after God. Put his kingdom and his righteousness first. And that's what Solomon did. The teachings of the New Testament derive from those acts put the kingdom and his righteousness first and then all that stuff i'll give to you anyway but if you worried about all that stuff that's where your anxiety that's where your your depression that's where your emptiness all that's gonna that's gonna come to you but if you just worry about my kingdom and my righteousness then guess what i'm gonna i'm gonna put all that matter of fact i'll do more than that i'll even give you the desires of your heart down deep. I know, I know you better than you know you. And I'll give you the desires of your heart down deep inside of you. This is what God does. So in, in uh, 1 Kings 4, it says, Now God gave Solomon wisdom. Where did wisdom come from? 
Did he come from him going to read a bunch of books? No. God. God. Now, is it wrong to read books? No. But that's not where wisdom comes from. Wisdom comes from God. God gave. Say, God gave. God gave Solomon wisdom. And, and very great discernment in the breadth of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore. You know, I, I don't want to keep feeling the Holy Spirit telling me to stop here. So, uh, if you go to Daniel, where you had uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, because they decided that they would not defile themselves and they would follow God's principles and they, they wouldn't eat the you know, food that God looked at as unclean. It said that the Lord made them how many times smarter than everyone else? Can anyone tell me? Ten times smarter than everyone else. Your children, what's going to make them smart is not the smartphone. What's going to make them smart is the smart God. Can I get an amen? God is the one that can do that when they dedicate themselves to him. So Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. His wisdom surpassed it all. For he was wiser than all other people. Verse 31. He was wiser than all other people. More than all these places I'm not going to try to name. And the fame of him was known in all the surrounding nations. He also told 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. Uh, he told of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, and even the hyssop that grows on the wall. He told also of animals, birds, crawling things, and fish. He would see an ant and say, wow, God's showing us something through this ant. He's showing us something. People came from all the nations to hear the wisdom of Solomon, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And all the earth was seeking the attention of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Now, I, I want to uh, back up a second. In the morning, my heart-to-heart -heart email goes out. If you've not been reading that, I, I hate that for you because you're truly missing out. On, on some tremendous uh, blessings of gifts of nature that God wants to give to you. And in Romans 1, it says that nature itself teaches us about who God is. I mean, what did the wise man study to find Jesus? The stars. And so when we uh, underestimate the power of studying creation, we miss a lot of the wisdom of life. And so we should be studying creation and extracting from it all the wisdom. And then what will happen is the whole world will be looking to, to come and to, to, to hear what it is that we have learned. But the heart to heart that's going out in the morning, it's on the gift of nature. Man, read it. Look at the picture. Meditate on it. Read the scripture. Very powerful. But all the world should seek to hear from us about their lives and what they should do with their struggle, their brokenness, their energy, their time, and their resources. To be 
Bless means to be envied. So all the world, if we're walking like Solomon was walking with, with extravagantly wanting to serve God and give to God and dedicating ourselves to God, <clears throat> God will come and, and make us in such a fashion where we're so blessed that people of the world envy our marriage. People of the world, y'all thought I was just going to talk about wealth, envy our marriage. They envy, you know, what's going on in our family, what's going on in the church, what's going on in your life, how favor just follows you, how goodness and mercy follows you. That when you walk in a room, goodness and mercy follows you. How you have favor with the boss, how you, how you have favor with others around you. I mean, that's what it means to be blessed. And the whole world be like, man, what's going on? I want some of that. And then you can tell them about an ant. Can I, can I get an amen? You can tell them about some, hey, you see that vine growing on the side of that tree right there? Let me tell you about that. And God will use you to talk to them and take from that vine to the Father who created it and created them and lead them to Jesus. Can I get an amen? This is what God wants. For all of us in this. Yeah, y'all give the Lord a hand clap. Praise God. Amen. And because Solomon was living in, in such that way, in 1 Kings 5, verse 4, it says, But now the Lord God has secured me rest on every side. Therefore, uh, there is neither adversary nor misfortune. That's what rest is. Where you have no adversary and there's no misfortune. He said, He's, he secured that for me. Oh, oh, who secured that? Okay, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Who is that? Yahweh, Yahweh has secured rest on every side. Adversary and misfortune, they're not around me. But what was the reason for that? So behold, since God has given me rest, see, when we get rest, oh man, let me just chill, let me... Let me just, uh, you know, do this and do that and make it about me. No, listen, when he gives that rest on every side, this is what Solomon said. He says, so, so behold, I intend to build a house for the name of Yahweh, my God, just as Yahweh spoke to David, my father, saying, your son, Shum, has put on the throne. He will build your house in this place. He's going to do this for my name. And so... The whole point is, when you have, when there is rest, that's an indication that you need to start building. Because when there's, when there's war and adversity, you, you're fighting. And so it's hard to build. I mean, Nehemiah, you know, he had a, a, a tool in one hand and he had a sword in the other. And sometimes we got to build that way. But man, Solomon could put his sword down. And man, he can work with both hands. And so if you have rest in your life right now, that's an indication that God wants you to involve yourself in his kingdom. He wants you to do a C group. He wants you to, you know, involve yourself with uh, helping someone. He wants you to get more involved uh, in serving somewhere. I mean, he wants you to, you know, build. He wants you to build his kingdom. For his namesake, I guide you in path of righteousness for your namesake? No, for his namesake. Hmm. To do this, Solomon 
had to make holy alliances with others. Remember we talk about every Sunday when we talk about the vision, world changers. Listen, you don't change the world by yourself. You have to make holy alliances with others. That's what we are doing. Church is about all of us coming together, making holy alliances, so that we can put our stuff together so we can have a greater impact. If we stay by ourselves, we're a pebble in the world. You throw a pebble in the water, and you can't even tell it hit the water. But if you take a bunch of pebbles and you put them together, and, and, you, and you glue them together through love and through, through passion, through mission, then you have a boulder. And if you throw that boulder in the water, you make a wave. And that wave has an impact in the world that we live. So King Haram was one of those who Solomon joined with to accomplish God's calling and purpose on the earth. It was forged with a mutual benefit to both. And so they were both fulfilling their calling in their life by having the same vision. Can I get an amen? To build the house of God. Friendship without purpose doesn't accomplish much. But friendship and God's purpose make a great impact on the earth. Let me, let me, let me explain this. Cindy, Cindy is my friend, but she's not just my friend. We are co-laborers. And because we co-labor to build the kingdom, our friendship is even more. Can I get an amen? And so it's important for us to understand that. Friendship needs to be connected with kingdom. Say, well, I'm a friend to someone that's not, not a Christian. Great. But your purpose is not to just be friends with them and let them go to hell. Your purpose is to use the friendship to lead them to Jesus. It's all about kingdom. Can I get an amen? So Solomon set out to build the house of the Lord. Four years to lay the foundation. Can I tell you something? Man, when you get saved, you got to spend some time laying the foundation. The foundation of Christ's teachings. Learning and growing in those teachings and His ways. you got to build that foundation. People, man, I, let me just throw some stuff on there. Well, if you throw too much on there without a foundation, it's all going to collapse. you got to have a foundation. And foundation is the rock. And the rock is Jesus. Can I get an amen? It took four years to do that. But he also, in the process, built his own house too. I want to show you something. Our house and God's house are both important. For one affects the other. So it's not just that we're building God's house, but we're also working on our own at the same time. We're just not putting ours above his. But because we're making his a priority and we're still working on ours, then God gets favor for ours and both go up. Both the local church and our personal lives should be spectacular by paying attention to all the details of the plan. That's the next slide, by the way. It should be, it should be spectacular. God wants, He doesn't just want the house of God to be in order, to be impactful, he wants our house to be in order, to be impactful. He wants that 
for your house. He wants that for his house. And those things work in tandem. They work in tandem together. Now, let's go to the end of Solomon. I got three minutes. So 1 Kings 1, uh, chapter 11, it says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. And then he goes through all the different types of women. From the nations of which the Lord has said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. They will certainly turn your heart away to follow their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. There you go right there. Where society says, well, is love bad? If I love this man loves a man, is that bad? If this woman loves a woman, is that bad? If this, you know, if this person loved a, an animal and married them, is that bad? I mean, how can love be bad? If this man loved four wives, is that bad? I mean, Solomon had a thousand. He had 700 concubines, 700 wives and 300 concubines. And, and, and so, but, you know, it says he clung to him in love. Can I tell you something? All love is not good. If God said it's forbidden, then it's forbidden. Period. In the story. Who says? God says. In the story. I mean, there's no debate. That's what God says. It's not, I don't have to uh, try to intellectually convince you of, of reason. No, here it is. God said. I think society's waiting to hear that because Satan keeps telling, you know, did God really say that? Yeah, God really said that. You, all love's not good. You can look at Solomon. This love was not good. And the thing was, <clears throat> he had 700 wives who were princes, 300 concubines. His wives, his wives turned his heart away. So his mistresses must not have as much influence. His wives turned his heart away. But when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God. It didn't say his heart wasn't devoted to God. It said wholly devoted to God. Guys, this is the Christian world. I'm afraid and I'm afeared that, you know, we're devoted to God, but we're also devoted to some things we shouldn't be devoted to. And that's what happened to Solomon. And the thing was, this didn't happen to Solomon right off the bat. Solomon, Solomon went along in his life with these women for quite some time. But eventually, it began to wear on him, and it got him. So you can embrace something that you're not supposed to embrace and not have immediate results of influence. So you think it's okay. But over time, it begins to draw you. And over time, before you know it, you're doing something you would have never did when you started out. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So he still was devoted to the Lord. He still went to the temple, but he also served other gods. And then you go... In the New Testament, it says you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. So you can't do that no more. 
That's, that, we couldn't do it then. Can't do that. That caused a lot of headache. Can't do that. All right? Now, the good news about Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon looks back over his wasted years and finds no joy in them. Only futility, vanity, and the chasing after the wind. He concludes that everything is meaningless. Wisdom, pleasure, toil, advancement, riches. You name it. Apart. Now, is wisdom bad in itself? No. Is, is, is enjoying yourself? No. Is, is advancement? No. But when it's apart from God, it becomes bad. When it, when it takes the place of God, it becomes, it becomes an idol. Going back to what really stuck out to me. And so, apart from honoring and loving God and following his commandments. At the end of it all, Solomon's life, he said, listen, I've come to find out, learn from my experience, that when it all boils down, it's about honoring and pleasing God and following his ways. That's what life is really about. It's not about all that other stuff. Because he got all that other stuff and it became empty. It's about him. That stuff without God is no good. It's no good. Let me ask you this. Would you be okay with heaven if God wasn't there? I hope I wouldn't. I hope I wouldn't, Father. But he knows my heart. I hope I wouldn't. But I think many would be great with heaven if God wouldn't, you know, get to heaven. And he got all that streets of gold and it's just beautiful in the mansion. They got to get all this stuff and no devil and all that. And man, I'd be great. But God's not there. Well, I guess it wouldn't be heaven, would it? Because what is all of that without him? I mean, he's the essence of it all. And I think if we can ever learn that. Maybe we can learn from Solomon. Man, don't, don't just start the race well. But don't, don't, get, don't get sidetracked. David said, he said, man, I almost, that almost happened to David. David said, man, I almost slipped up. I almost went the wrong way. Because I was looking at the world. And I was looking at what they were doing. And he said, it almost made me slip up. And then Pastor Warren. And he said, but then I, I, I went in the house of God. And I was like, whoa, okay. I got to get my priorities straight. This is all about God. And he said, now God help me because he, he broadened the path beneath my feet. He showed me, he showed me his path and that's the one I'm going to stay on. Guys, let's stay on his path. Let's stay walking in him. Leave the forbidden love alone. Leave it alone. Don't, don't create, evaluate yourself. Have you made an idol of something? Something good could become something bad when we put it above the one who's good because he's the only one that's good amen and so let's make sure we don't take the good things God gives us and put them above God and that's the sower of the seed when he said it some fell in the thorns and he said when the riches that came because they were following the principles of God and the riches came to him he said the riches and the the busyness of life begin to choke out what this was all about. It was all about giving fruit to God. 
but they lost sight of that. The blessings around us, we, we live in a parish that's the, the best parish they say to live in in Louisiana. And the blessings that we have, let us not allow them to wrap us up and choke out the real reason we have them. The real reason we have them. Yes, to meet your needs. Yes, to enjoy. But it's to make a difference in the world. It's to give. It's to use it to do good works. It's to use it to honor Him. Oh, that someone would bring a thousand head of cattle through here. Caleb, I'd buy you two knives. You skin right-handed and left-handed. We just skin them. Put the innards up here and burn them to God. Can I get an amen? I speak rhetorically. So don't be driving, Bubba. Don't, Bubba, don't tell Bubba, don't bring them cows down the driveway right there. Y'all get anything out of this? Come on, let's stand to our feet. Let's ask this tonight. Let's ask this tonight. Father, say, Father. Give us a discerning heart that we may follow you in all of our ways. Father, help us. Holy Spirit, teach me. Lord Jesus Christ, guide me so that I am pleasing to you. I pray this. I ask this. In your holy name, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, amen and amen. Come on, give the Lord a hand clap of praise and honor and glory. Hey, I love you guys. I appreciate you.